Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of self-improvement, systems, and society. My guest today is Ramesh Nagaraja. Ramesh is a recent graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and a newly commissioned second lieutenant of the United States Marine Corps. He is also the author of the recently viral article, Reflections from a Token Black Friend. In this episode, Ramesh and I discuss the importance of honest exposure to different cultures, how racism should be defined, virtue signaling, tangible actions people can take to make a difference, how to start a conversation on race, and much more. This was an eye-opening conversation with a gracious, caring, patient, intelligent, and all-around excellent human being. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ramesh. Ramesh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. So, the magic of writing online, man. Yeah, it's remarkable. So you you wrote this essay, really good essay, Reflections from a Token Black Friend. What doors has this opened for you so far? Uh, multiple, I think. Number one, just conversations I'm having with people that I already had a lot of meaningful conversations on a regular basis with friends, but just this was a topic that usually stayed out of it. And I've had some really powerful conversations with close friends, friends' parents, adults that I don't know that well, people like you who just reached out to talk and then also just, you know, realizing that I can use my writing for a more purposeful outlet and try to keep with that. And then beyond that, you know, just social media is pretty remarkable how quickly you can become someone people want to follow and just connecting with a lot of really interesting people. So it's it's so crazy. I, I mean, Twitter in particular is what I use and I've connected with like a ton of really interesting people. Um, and I haven't written anything as like meaningful as, as you've written here. So how, how long have you been writing online or was this like kind of your first thing? This is my first thing. What, what possessed you to write it besides, you know, the obvious? I mean, in the past I'd always found that when there's a lot of thoughts going through my head, that it's helpful for me to put things down on paper and my brother got really passionate about all of the race issues going on after George Floyd's death. And he was asking me, like, I want to use our platform to do more. What can I do? And I was like, you should write. It's always helpful for me. And just a, I think it's a productive process to organize those thoughts into words and you can affect people without even having to speak to them. Uh, and he wrote and his piece picked up a good amount of steam, especially in our friend circles. And the two steps out of that. Uh, and then I was already planning on writing something. And then I finally did. I like to have my thoughts sort of build up mm. and then accumulate. And then I just put them all down at once. So like that piece took about four hours of writing, two hours of editing. Uh, and, and that's helpful for me. You know, I, it's cathartic and it also, I can weave through all these issues more fluently and, in writing than I can necessarily speaking. Yeah, I, I've had the same experience. I, I find that uh, I write a lot of articles and, and they usually start out as just this idea that's kind of weird and abstract that pops into my head and then I'll tell my girlfriend about it and she'll look at me like I have three heads. And I'll be like, okay, I got to work this over a little bit more. And then I'll start writing it and things will start to come together. And usually I'll give it to her to read again and she'll be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, change this, put this here give a little more explanation. So what I find is that going through this process really tightens my my thinking and I'm better to 
I'm able to more clearly articulate that initial thought that came into my head three weeks ago, you know, after working through this process. And in being able to do that, you're able to reach other people, which is really like almost as important as, as tightening your own thinking. So this is, um, it's been really, really helpful for me. And it seems like it, it's been helpful for you as well. So this is it's really cool. I yeah, hope you keep going. Definitely. So can you give us a little background on yourself? Yourself, I know from reading the article, you grew up in Boston and I believe you went to the Naval Academy and played football there. Is that correct? Yeah, I played. Uh, so in the beginning, I, I grew up in Boston, but I was in this program called MECO. It was the first and longest running voluntary integration program in the, in the country based out of Boston into the suburbs around. So right now I'm actually, I'm in Weston right now. And one of my friends, uh, this is his sister's room, actually, uh, just at her desk. But uh, I went to school here since preschool, all through high school, graduated, went to the Naval Academy. I didn't play on the, we call it the big boys team, like the D1 well-known football program. I played sprint football. It's a pretty uncommonly known thing, but it's a normal football but with a weight limit. So we weigh in before two days before every game. There's about 10 or 11 schools with it. Us, UPenn, Army, Cornell. Those are, those are the notable ones. Oh, that's uh, cool. And then the rest are all some small schools. What's but the weight limit? 178 pounds. Wow. Okay. So it's a cutting, it's a cutting sport. Like I weigh around 178 when I was playing, but I knew some guys that cut some, some crazy weight. It's like 20, 30 pounds every week. Holy shit. That's crazy. So you have a 178-pound lineman? That's yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, but they're not playing at that weight. They're playing at like a little over that. But, yeah, it's a faster game for that reason. And right. I know it's fun. It's fun. It was fun to play. I got to play four more years of football, which most guys can't say. Right. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So are you still in school there? Have you graduated? I just graduated in May. Congratulations. Uh, second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And... I'm going to grad school in the Marine Corps approved program at Carnegie Mellon for a year. Nice. And after that, I'll continue with my Marine Corps trainings. What are you going to grad school for? Uh, information technology strategy. Okay. So pretty new sphere, but really relevant and sort of the study of all those systems and how they impact our lives and how we should deal with them and what what lies ahead, basically. Sure. Yeah. I'm a little bit more familiar with with the Army than I am with the Navy or the Marine Corps. Um, so how does it work when you graduate the Naval Academy? Do you get to decide if you want to go to the Navy or the Marines? Do you get to uh, our senior year our senior year throughout the four years, you have to do certain things to qualify for every community. In our senior year, the week before Thanksgiving, or I guess I should start with in August, we put in our preferences which only include the things that you're qualified for based off okay. what you've done and how things. Uh, put your preferences in, and then on the week before Thanksgiving, we find out what we got. Oh, cool! So I've known I was Marine Corps since then. Okay, and about a quarter of every class goes Marine Corps. Got it. And specifically within the Marine Corps, what what branch or MOS or whatever? Uh, so your MOS gets decided at the basic school, which I would be going to in August if I wasn't going to grad school. Uh, that's a six month program where you learn basic skills and you would find out your job. I have an air contract, so I would just go to TBS and then go to flight school. Okay. But personally, I'm probably leaning towards giving away that air contract so I can try to be an infantry officer. 
but that's competitive and it's it's hard to say right now i have a full year until i'm there excuse me so sure oh that that's awesome though um good for you that's great thank you so after so grad school's a year then you go into the marines what's your commitment uh so i'm a second lieutenant now the year program there's some funky rules with it but i owe five years after that okay. active duty yeah got it okay so th do you i know a lot of people change their mind on this but do you see yourself continuing into a military career or do you want to do something i probably different? won't okay. just because there's there's a lifestyle i want to live that doesn't align well with being in the service just I'm a pretty spontaneous guy and I like being the person who will just go on a random trip or work in sort of my own control. And I also, you know, I, I want to get into politics one day and that can't really start that, even that sort of public portrayal really until I'm out. So sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. That's, that's admirable. I, uh, I don't envy politicians. <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to, I like people. I'm sorry. It's a people job though. I it like is. people. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's important. So I'd like to jump into your article and talk about a lot of the stuff that's, that's in there and hear you go elaborate ahead. on it. Um, can we just kind of start with the term token black friend? Can you just kind of define that term so everyone understands what we're talking about? Yeah. So the token black friend is the person who is the black friend in the group where there's probably no other people of color. It's probably all white people. And it's certainly not a term that I go by or people in my circles call me that or anything, but it's a term that I'm aware of and know that if you were to look at my page or to see me out, that's a hundred percent what I am, you know, like the token black friend in the group. And there's all sorts of consequences of that in terms of, you know, he's the reason why a lot of people would like if they were with their white friends at school and it's only white people like, but I had a black friend growing up. Like, I like, you know, I'm like, it's the same logic behind like people who defend like saying nigga, they're like, my best friend's black. Like those, that person in that person's life is the token black friend. Okay. And that's kind of affords you an escape from even recognizing if you have prejudices or biases. So it's kind of like an, it has a negative connotation. Yeah. And that's why I was very intentional with in my first paragraph to say like, this by no means is a comment on my depth of relationships that I have. Cause mine, I consider very real and very meaningful, but outside looking in, that's a hundred percent. I fit that, that role. And I think it goes another step from the black perspective to sort of recognize how you feel sometimes even in those meaningful relationships of you feel like a token person because you're denied a piece of your identity or a piece of who you are. And that's what I try to run in run with in the article of how, despite how comfortable I was in these communities, here's some stuff I still dealt with and faced. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting is when you talk about code switching, mm -hmm. can you kind of like dive into that a little bit more, explain what it means and then talk about the, the, the degree to which you found yourself doing that between your, your white friends and your black friends. So code switching, 
this is more than just black and white people. This is like just cross-cultural anything. Code switching is just a thing known of like, how do you speak with this group? And then suddenly you come around these people and you speak a total different way. So I'll get crapped on by some of my friends occasionally, my white friends, if I'm hanging with black people, I just talk a little different. Like my tone might change a little. I'm using terms that I don't use with them. Like for instance, I say bruh a lot when I'm talking to my black male friends and like certain things within the community that we say to each other that our mother said to us that are just like funny. And we know we have certain jokes and like that can be criticized as code switching. Whereas I think code switching is more like a thing to be envied because it allows you to cross those cultural bonds Hmm. bounds. And there's definitely a point where, it can become inauthentic and it can become just, you know, you're trying to fit in with either group. Sure. But for me, it was always like a genuine thing. At least I I think for a majority of the time. And that became like, I think what I was really getting at in that part of the article was like, I think when code switching occurs, it's one of the few times where white people feel like how I usually feel because they can't relate to what's being talked about or, or they feel odd in this conversation or they feel like they stand out suddenly. And that's what's, that's what I was trying to get at. I didn't go deep into that, but. No, which is why I wanted to have this conversation. You know, I think like you can only put so much in a, in a paragraph or a couple paragraphs. So that that's an excellent explanation. And it, it gives some really good perspective, I think. So I think another way to look at it, like outside of, of race then is, like the kids you grow up and go to high school with, and then you go off to college and you make friends at college. Mm-hmm. So you might speak to your high school friends differently mm-hmm. than you do your college friends because you grew up together and you have inside jokes and you know different people. And, and maybe you're from, uh, I don't know, say you grew up in the Northeast and you went to college in the in the Southwest. Right? Mm-hmm. There just like might be some cultural differences yeah. there. So it shouldn't be looked at negatively. It's like you said, it's like kind of a, a benefit, right? Like you're able to fit in in different, different situations Mm -hmm. so did you ever feel when your friends were criticizing you for doing that like is that a form of racism is that something that bothered you i don't don't think racism i think that's like a prime example of you not even realizing the the bias of play that back into to what i was just saying i don't think they recognize how how difficult it is to be a black kid who's friends with a lot of white people and immersed in that culture and how much that just toys with your identity. Like I could go back and read some like early college essays. I practice wrote as like a junior in high school. And this being something like writing about, like, I don't know which community I fit into or me going, I could think back to an essay I wrote in eighth grade, like for my entire life, I remember always wrestling with like, you know, I have, I'm so embraced by the white community, but I don't fully fit in here. And like, as you're growing up and this doesn't only come from the white community, like the black community, if you're really immersed in the white community kind of pushes you away and craps on you a little bit for it. They call you like the white kid in the group. Mm. Like it goes both ways. And as I got older, I saw a lot more of that occurring from the other side than from my side, because I think, now, like, we're just kind of going around now, but a lot of these things that my friends who are black would call me white for, as we got older, they started to appreciate those things a little bit more. 
such as, you know, speaking properly or my education. So like when senior year came around and I had a lot of options of what I wanted to do with my life, yeah. a lot of them didn't. And I realized the reason for that is they never got the messaging that I got. But because of that, a lot of those other uh, comments stopped. Whereas interesting, you still get them from the white community. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, it does. It does. When you talk about messaging, what do you, what do you mean by that? So I grew up with in a unique family dynamic by all means for where I'm from in the city. And then also my friend group was just like a very high performing parents all expected certain things of all of us. Like we wouldn't allow each other to, to be underperforming in sports, school, morals, like very unique, like mature group of guys throughout my entire upbringing. And I realized that's so unique. And I think of like the messaging that my peers who weren't in this program were growing up in city schools, like that type of messaging does not occur of like why it's important to the point that they really get it. Like why it's important to know how to carry yourself in a certain type of conversation, like a professional conversation or why your grades in ninth and 10th grade actually matter, you know, sure. anything like that. It's just, I think black boys are told their potential pretty early in life, whether it's accurate or not, you know, it's usually inaccurate. They're just, but they're told something about what they're capable of. And because I was immersed in this other group where, and I go into it in the article about how my brother and I thought we had some sort of like black privilege. Yeah. We certainly did in some ways, but it didn't actually, doesn't actually spare us from the horrors of being black. But right. in that area, like we got the messaging from our parents and from my core group of friends, parents of like, we're all capable of this, you know? Right. And that's, it was really unique. And I think it goes to show like I was able to be successful. My brother was able to be successful. My sister was able to be successful for that reason. Yeah. I, I, I so I grew up with that and I think I almost take it for granted. And I think if everyone were afforded that opportunity, it would solve, a lot of problems that we have, but how do, how do you, how do you afford that opportunity to everyone? How do you create those situations? Right. It sounds like Metco did a lot of that for you, yeah. but it doesn't do it for every kid. So Which, why your, is that? Illustrates the problem, you know, uh, or the challenge. Right. Uh, I mean, we had a unique situation, which I talk about in one of the earlier parts of my piece of saying, you know, two-parent household, middle, middle class. I think it's somewhere around in Boston, only 4% of black families belong to the middle class. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly rare that we'd be coming from a middle-class family. Uh, so that meant my mom could work from home our entire life. She could drive us to and from school if she needed to. If we had a program, we wanted to be er there early because we were co-president, like she could drop us off early or they were able to get us a car. So like, most of the Mecca kids don't have their license by the time they graduate. We did. As soon as we could get it, we had a car. We could go do what we want to do. So we could be super involved and like immersion into this community just naturally happened because there's nothing to plan us out as different because we, we weren't as well off as people from this community. But like I never really had to say like, oh, I can't do that because my, I, I can't afford that. Or like I can't stay after school to, to work on my grades or I can't 
do this with sports. I'd never had those options. And going back to your original question of like, how do we do that? I think the first step is like honest exposure, which starts in the home, I think. So for instance, down in, uh, in Annapolis, we're all assigned uh, a host family. When we get down there, every single midshipman gets one. It's a local Annapolis family that will take care of you. The, the main intent is like, if you need laundry done or a ride to the airport, things like that. And it's kind of a hit or miss thing. Some people get very, very, very close with that family. Other people visit once or never visit. Other people are in the middle or it's just mm-hmm. sort of like a business relationship. I'm very, very close with mine. I'd call them equally, you know, my, my second family, the kids, my siblings, and they have three young ones, six, five or seven, five and three. And I'll speak to the dad all the time and he'll be like, I'm just so thankful that we got a kid like you in our family, part of our family and a black kid and like them seeing at such a young age, just like a genuine family black person in their life who's just like loves on them and hangs out with them and it's obviously high performing because like the older ones starting to understand like the academy and how it's a cool thing to be to be there yeah and he's like you know like i've had the conversations where she like she'll ask me like she asked me when she's like why are you black and then he's i'm there for the conversation where her her dad is like well because that's how god made him just like how he made you white like and these little things of exposure, honest exposure, where you have a genuine relationship with someone who doesn't look like you can go a really long way, I think. And I think that's what Mecco intends to do. It doesn't always do it, but it definitely achieves it most of the time. And in some cases, it gets the perfect or like the ideal impact where someone is, is fully bought in. We have strong relationships and it results in the entire group performs better. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great concept. I know that you know where I grew up is a small town in upstate New York, and there were very very few black people, and really no people of any other ethnicity or race there. Um, so, like you said, when you don't have those interactions, just those daily little things, uh, you view people as different. And when you view somebody as different, then um, it's harder to have positive interactions. I think so. It, it's just so important have diversity in your life and i think if you don't if it's not in your life and it becomes you just view them as different i don't think it's inherently problematic but it opens up the door for it to be influenced by whatever so it will be influenced by your parents by the media and what you see on tv which usually isn't a great uh, reflection of what black people are Mm. or it'll be influenced by your friends at school who like then they have their set of influences and it's, it sort of propagates that way. And that's where I think you get problems where like, I know people who never grew up with black people in their life, but I meet them and they were just taught to be kind, inclusive, kind, uh, accepting people, sure. no problems, you right. know? Right. But there's other people where it's like where they grew up, you never saw a black person, tons of jokes were made about black people, about them being that, then you saw it on them on TV portrayed this certain way. And then why would I want to be friends with a black person? Or why would I feel sympathy for a black person? Right. It can go any path. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, I think it can go bad. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the important thing about having conversations like this is for white people like myself, especially who didn't grow up around a lot of black people, 
and still don't really have any black friends. I didn't understand the extent to which uh, black people still experience like direct overt racism on mm-hmm. a somewhat regular basis. And you had some really good examples in your article about uh, specific instances. Uh, one was um, you were in a bar in Narragansett. And uh, yeah, one time there, uh, that was with the women thing. Yeah, the other one was in the Cape Cod. In Cape Cod, can you talk about the 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 women example? Uh, the women example, it which I wouldn't even call that or overt racism because I think that was just the the clearest example you could have of of bias. Mm, that you're yeah. not implicit bias that like to many people was like on its face, like dude, you're biased. But in his mind, it was just a given that white women were superior or superior. Just to black back up a little bit and explain the situation. Up a little bit, tell the story. All right. So we're in the bar. Uh, I was visiting one of my best friends that I know from down in DC. He's from Narragansett. Uh, and I meet a group of his friends, all great guys. You know, they, they accept me in very quickly. We're joking, having a great time. I'm dancing, they're dancing, you know, I'm having an excellent time with them. And I'm at the bar with one of them who I befriended pretty quickly out of the whole group of him and I sort of came like buddy, buddy in there. Girl walks in and I'm like, Hey, I I like her. He's like, uh, which one? And like, I point out who she is and I know she's black. And then he goes, yeah, man, she's cute. But like, you could have one of the white ones in here, you know? And like, didn't realize the problem with it. I was like, what do you mean, bro? And you know, he realized that it didn't really sit well with me, but yeah. to him, it wasn't like rude. It wasn't insensitive. It was just he, like, why wouldn't the black kid want to hook up with a white girl? Cause like it's a white girl, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it illustrated perfectly. Like he just had no idea. And like, he had treated me with nothing but kindness before and after this instant, like we had a great time. But that one instance just like was in my head the whole night replaying. So I was like, number one, I've been so complicit in that throughout my entire life because, you know, just the way I speak and I might not feel this way, but I don't speak up when I hear little comments about like the black woman in my school and and high school or the black woman around us in the bars and the way they're kind of like, they're like a, if you want to hook up with them, it's like a, it's like something you just want to do to do, you know, like my white friends want to do it so they can say they got with a black girl and geez, it comes like funny. And like, I don't even realize it and think about it as much as I should. And that was me. I was literally writing and it occurred to me and I was like, wow, I'm so complicit in this. And I think it illustrated perfectly, as I said already, just like, that's an example that to, to many sounds like, well, that's like overt bias, but that was an example to him. It wasn't racist at all. It, yeah. To him, it was just, this is how things are. So do you, would you define that as racism or would you define it as ignorance? Uh, what was it? Or what? Ignorance. I think in, in all cases, there's going to be an overlap there. Sure. Yeah. But here's my thing. And this is a, this is probably a unique perspective or take on a question like that. I don't want that to ever something like that to be defined the way racism, the way I want racism to be defined and how we use it. Cause like when I say someone is being racist to me or that person is racist, 
I want that to hold a lot of power. I yeah. wanted I wanted to hit people in their conscience and wake them up and be like, well, that person is, I have a problem with them. And like to really, you know, provoke action. And I fear that if we use it too broadly when describing people on individual basis and instances, it's going to lose that power and you're just going to become one of those words that people turn a blind eye to and are just like, they call everyone racist, you know? And there's a way I could define it where, yes, he's prejudiced, you know, like without even realizing it. And there's, there's an inherent bias, but that's why I think like throwing the word of systemic racism in front of it is very important because that's an example of like, he never had a problem with me and anything else never said anything in this comment he didn't he wouldn't have said it to me if he thought it was racist because we right. even if he felt that way and didn't care about how i felt about him he obviously wanted to be my friend yeah so if he thought it was a problem and he was okay with feeling that way as i think most racists are then then he wouldn't have said it and i just i don't like the idea of like to me i label him a racist there's no redemption for him in his mind. There's no, I'm sorry, I didn't un- even understand in his mind. Like, what outlet is next now? <laughs> All right, you're a right. racist, man. Get right. out of here. Like, right. I think that tends to be the path. That doesn't have to be. But I think it leaves him with no options in a way, you know? I think th- that is such a, an excellent, nuanced explanation of that situation because I think after that interaction you had with him, and of course this is just speculation, but I, w- I would guess he would never say something like that again. Mm-hmm. And maybe um, think about why, and I didn't do a good job of addressing it head on because I was the outsider in the group. I didn't want to be the one to like stir up anything, which is like I say in my, my article, like I haven't been great in the past about speaking up when I should. Mm-hmm. And that's like a prime example. I said like, what do you mean, bro? But after that, you know, he understood in his, I could see in his face, he understood and I just like we rolled on, but yeah, yeah. I hope it, it impacted in a way that he could think about it and inquire in himself. Like, why did he have a problem with that? You know? Yeah, and I, and I th- so I think situations like that are are largely ignorance with a little bit of racism in there. But like you said, you don't want to just throw around that term loosely because it loses mm-hmm. meaning. Much like you you hear a lot of people throwing around the term Nazi, and, mm-hmm. and that I think is starting to lose meaning, which also is is a very it's a bad thing. Um, but conversations that you might have with that person or that you and I are having and other people might listen to can just totally flip the switch on somebody who might make an offhand comment like that, that they don't even realize can be perceived as racist or ignorant or whatever. So like conversations are like, what's going to change that type of, of issue. Now you mentioned systemic racism. So I, in my mind have an idea of what I think systemic racism is versus like just just plain old regular racism but i'm really interested how you would define that with maybe some examples i think like the disclaimer to be understood is that systemic racism is trying to point out that when legally the overt racism in our laws and systems was removed there it shouldn't surprise you that there were massive efforts made to make to make sure that its effects still reigned in the system. So, when when segregations ended, you know, property taxes, 
and redlining is, is done in such a way to make sure that like the white schools remain good in white schools, you know, like right. and how they district. And that shouldn't surprise you because think, think in the mind of, of a fifties politician who's probably racist if he's right. white, you know, like at that time, think in the mind, you think that the law changed, they're just like, Oh, law changed. Now let's right. all be, be like kumbaya together. Like, right. Just think about it that way. If you don't think, I think you would have to be very ignorant to not accept that when the law changed, there definitely were efforts made to make sure that the current system at that time, mm. contemporary system, maintained itself. And I think if you can put it in that lens, it's easier to accept that when we look around today, and you notice that in some ways, a lot of things haven't changed. Many neighborhoods are still as or more segregated as they were before. Many schools are as or more segregated than they were, at least in the 60s, right after when desegregation attempted to happen. The way the economic inequality has gotten worse, and then you look at predatory loaning and based, based off of race and these things that exist in loopholes. Right. That's where it's like, I'm not making an affront against you as an individual white person. Just please realize systemic racism is pointing out like, there were these things designed in our systems to ensure that even if you didn't personally take advantage of it, that you had an upper hand. Sure. You could have played the hand wrong or your father or grandfather could have played the hand wrong, but you were given a better hand in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I think when you get into systemic racism, a lot of people get really upset and privileged specifically to get really upset because they're like, you know, my grandfather had it hard just as hard as any black person. And he, he helped black people, even though he was poor. Like you get very defensive. And like, that's what the whole white fragility thing is about. And it's like, yeah, because of their race, like that did end. But there were definitely things in place to make sure that you were able to succeed, more likely to succeed than someone, than someone of my skin color. And I think the deeper part is how our inherent biases, our excuse me, our implicit biases, perpetuate that system and keep us from really waking up to what's going on and what we're missing. And that's why my story was mostly aimed on that, of the things that you might never have realized were problematic, maybe rooted in racism at least on how you learned it was rooted yeah. in racism, that education or, or things that go on around you that you just had no idea ever occurred and how they impacted an individual who you say you love and you know loves you. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that's a good explanation. That's pretty much how I understood it. Um, I think another good example of that is probably like the war on drugs and certain sentencing guidelines mm -hmm. that, that disproportionately and unfairly affect minorities, specifically black people. Absolutely. So I think the protests that we're seeing are really good in the sense that these are things that can only be changed through legislation, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to step up and move forward and enact some things like maybe revisit sentencing guidelines, maybe revisit uh, I, I'm not sure how you would revisit property taxes, but maybe do something. So it, we, we're I not think the solution is the public schools shouldn't be based, shouldn't be funded primarily by property taxes. Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Any ideas like what, how, how that might work? I've not thought about this at all. Uh, so with schools, 
their public schools are funded by property taxes, as we just said. Why not instead, within the state's budget in combination with the federal funding they get, they just set the, the funding for each school. And by most means, it should actually make more sense that with the higher tax revenue in the cities, although there's more kids to offset that, they should be able to give better resources to those schools, especially considering in the high income suburbans, if people are dissatisfied with their school, they have the choice to go to a private school. Mm. And that choice, although there is still a choice, most people in the city don't have that option if they're of low income. Right. Because either your kid gets a scholarship or he doesn't go at all or right. she doesn't go at all. So the system might look like every school gets the same amount of funding from the state, like based on the number of students in the yeah, school. Based on their size. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, yeah. that seems like a great solution. Um, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I, I like thinking about this stuff because. Yeah, and then I, I think the question becomes one of the defenses after that is like, well, all these schools would then all be underfunded. That's one of the things, but I think we, we then just jump into the bigger question of like, well, why does our society put so little money into education overall? Right. That, that's really a, one of the other root problems for everyone, you know? And I think, unfortunately, the way the property tax system set up, and this is very specifically like a Northeast thing because we have good public schools, whereas a lot of other states struggle with the same issues regardless of race because all the public schools are bad. But, you know, it allows people up here to not even fully realize or care because the wealthier, mostly white people have their kids either in a private school or in a very good public school. They don't even realize. And if they lived in the city, they definitely would have their kid in a private school. Yeah. Without a question. We talked about systemic racism. And I think that there's another type of racism that I I don't know that there's like a, a clear name for, but I just call it like individual racism. And this is you know, people being either overtly racist, saying things that are, they're clearly racist to other people or, you know, making racist jokes or saying things that maybe are not overtly racist, but certainly have, have bias and and connotations. And I I think the best way to root that out is through conversations and getting to know people who are, are different from you. And this takes time, right? Like Mm -hmm. you had a really good quote in your article where you said, um, the length of my journey makes me inclined to be more patient with others in this process as it's taken me this much time to wake up. We should all be reasonably patient with one another, but I would encourage individuals to not be patient with themselves and to treat these issues with the urgency they deserve. Later, you go on to say, I'd emphasize that most white people do not understand their level of ignorance, especially the good ones who mean well, and that negligence is part of the problem. I think I think what you said where where um, you say that individuals should not be patient with themselves that is super important. Like I think we all need to be out there, getting uncomfortable, having uncomfortable conversations, reading books, um, watching watching videos on 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 this stuff, so we can really root this out on our own. But we also need to remember that we need to be patient, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, that entire thing or just that small 
portion. Just, just that just that small portion. The the yeah. the urgency versus the patience, because urgency, of course, mm-hmm. is important here. Um, but yeah. So with the urgency, yeah, that's actually a perfect way to actually sort out my thoughts. The urgency is that the anger on display and the emotions that you're seeing right now that probably a lot of white people might be getting bored of or frustrated or or sick of and ready for Instagram to be normal again, you know, that should speak to you that there's a lot of pain that people are hiding. And here I am as a guy who will openly and proudly say, you know, I love the white people in my life. And like, I don't suspect that will ever change, but here's in my writing, here's the pain I've gone through and here's the emotions I'm dealing with. Like, if you say you care, you know, prove it, back it up. And like, there's no excuse and the, the onus is on you, whether you like it or not. And there's this thing called the fault responsibility line. And like, oftentimes when we speak about issues, we confuse fault versus responsibility. And many things in life are not your fault. You know, things happen or things are the, the way they are when you came into the world, for instance, the racist world that we, we came into. But you have a responsibility in how you respond to that and which type of person you choose to be. And do you choose to be productively positive in this area or do you choose to be, I'll call it negatively neutral or actively negative, you know? Because uh, I think the neutral is also negative. Uh, and you can make a choice and you should be wanting to grow in this area. And, and another thing with that is like, we all have certain things that we're really passionate about social causes and things in human interactions that we're pretty passionate about, whether it's from our own story, the story of our loved ones or, or whatever, whether that's gay issues or trans issues or how you feel native Americans, like so many different things, the growth that you put in the effort that you put in to grow in the area of racism, like with black and white people, like that's not, it's in, excuse me, it is indiscriminate. It's not like exclusive to there. Like taking the time to be more thoughtful and reflective about how you speak, live and act and the things that made you that way, that growth is going to make you better in all of it. It's not just going to make you better at dealing with black people. It's just going to make you more conscious and make you more sensitive to how hard it might be for someone else or how vulnerable other people are or things that go on without outside of your sphere. So now when you're trying to convince someone to be passionate about these other issues, you understand like there's always something someone feels deeply for, you know, and the growth and the reflection and the meditation and the scrutinizing of ourselves that we should be doing when it comes to the race issues are going to make us better about everything. And they're going to make us better able to have conversations like, learning how to have a hard conversation about race is going to be helpful in having a hard conversation about everything else, which we need to be better about in everything. That's going to make our politics better. That's going to make our day-to-day interactions better. That's going to make it so I don't have to go on Facebook and see like my friend hating my other friend, but never would say it in person type of thing. And then on the other side of that, the patient side, uh, I'm a big believer in you have to meet people where they are and you can't speak truth out of relationship. And it's really easy with all of this to get angry, frustrated and sad and pissed off because these issues are really hard and hurtful and 
they've been around for a long time. And like, as a black person, you're socialized your entire life to understand this pain to the point that it's, it hurts to know that a lot of white people have no idea. And like, that hurts to know that like people don't care and you can be inclined to be so angry and let that cloud the fact that like, if that's all we are, then we're not going to win over and allow the people to grow that we need to. And it's just going to become you're yelling at someone who, who has the power, you know, like the person with the power to either actively help you be neutral or negative. If, if they start, if the conversation becomes like, like that's never going to improve anything. And like, I wrote my piece with a specific lens of writing to my friends and circles because I was like, here's a guy that loves you and you love him. And here's my piece. Let me speak some truth into your life. And it's because we have a relationship. And if you're outside of that relationship and outside of recognizing that you need to show some patience and meet people where they are, there's a high chance you're going to push them into a box where they're either turned off completely to what you're saying or they're angry and never going to admit that they can grow or agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a fantastic point. There's this, this good book called how to have impossible conversations and it has heard of it. I haven't read it, but I know it's very good. I I would recommend it, but it's (laughs) it's got a bunch of different techniques. And one of the big techniques is called building golden bridges. So when you're having a conversation with somebody and, and you your goal is to get them to change their mind. Um, you want to give them an, a gracious outlet to be able to change their mind without feeling like they lost the argument, right? So you might say something like, you know, I struggled with this for a long time as well, or um, it, it took me a long time to understand this. And then when they say something like, yeah, you know, I can kind of see your perspective. You don't say, oh, I I told you, or what took you so long or something like that, right? Like you want to build this golden bridge where it's just a seamless transition from where they were to where you are. And I think that's really difficult to do because when you're having a a discussion or an argument, you want to win, right? Um, But winning an argument doesn't help people to change their minds and it doesn't facilitate understanding. So I think that's an important thing for everyone to remember. Um, I'd like to quickly talk about what we've seen a lot on social media because I think a lot of what I've seen at least is virtue signaling. Um, I think specifically I'm going to use the example of people posting black squares on Instagram. Like a lot of the people who do that, I'm sure are actually doing other stuff and, and really care about the cause and that kind of thing. But I think there are plenty of people who just posted a black square because they didn't want to get shit from their friends calling mm-hmm. them racist or saying that they don't care. Um, interested to hear your take on on social media social justice versus like actually going out and doing something like i myself did not post a black square on instagram because i didn't feel that it actually did anything meaningful Mm -hmm. Um, but i've done a few things like trying to have conversations and trying to read some material that makes me more understanding Um, what are your thoughts on that it's it's a it's a complicated answer I'll say the first thing is obviously, yes, you want people doing way more than that and they should be doing way more than that. And I hope they are wanting and are doing more than that. But uh, as a guy who was at first kind of turned off to it and got questions from people about 
And my, my answer I gave was virtue signaling on its own shouldn't be a bad thing. Like you want people to showcase good virtues sure. and you want a society that celebrates good, good virtues that we all agree on. And those to be part of the things that we talk about and project in our social media profiles that are usually only us just looking good in pictures and doing cool things. It's kind of cool if maybe there's also something in there about like, here's something I believe in. Even if it might ultimately just be a shallow depiction of something you believe in, I'm glad to at least know that it's there and the good virtues are being celebrated. And obviously it gives, it gives an easy escape path or like I've done my part and now I don't need to do anything else, but on its own, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. And then another piece was, I, I got this from a video I watched on why someone defended the black square. And she was saying how the reason it's good for you to do is because you have no idea how many people that follow you are going to be angry that you did it, not because of virtue signaling, but they're going to be angry that you did it, like that you post a Black Lives Matter post. And your your DMs are going to be blowing up. You're going to get unfollows from your close friends who you think are your close friends because you posted this Black Square. And I know multiple friends who posted the Black Square and lost followers, including like one of my good friends, like somebody's supposed to live with next year, moved, unfollowed him when wow. he posted the Black Square. And like, if that's not prompting conversations that need to be had, I don't know what is. And there's a power to that. And like, yes, you want it to be more than that. You want the action to be much more than that. But there's a power to doing that. And it's kind of goes to a rabbit hole. I read some like Alexander the Great stuff talking about how like shame and guilt are are powerful motivators within cultures and some cultures operate in their justice system more on guilt and some more on shame. Mm -hmm. Ours tends to be a mix of both because we have this weird, like European mix system. But, uh, in this aspect, shame can be very powerful. This isn't shame. Like you feel like a deep pain and it's a bad thing. This is shame. Like you should feel a shame when you don't, or you will always feel a shame when you don't align with what, society is saying and what your society that you value agrees in or the people around you. That's what I mean by society. I mean like all of America, just like your crew. Yeah. And in this area, I think it's powerful that shame was being projected on people who were avoiding this issue and people who were being quiet about it. And I thought at first, and obviously it takes a different trend because a lot of people just use the square as their excuse to step out, but on its own, the square was saying, hey, I know it's hard for you to be an active social media person in the first place because that's not who you are anyways. Like I can look at your page and you have two posts, but like, hey, man, I expect that you're posting a black square. And then hopefully it's more than that. And hopefully in the first place you were doing more than that anyways. But this aspect of like, I do want it to be cool for people to support black Ma black lives matter like that should be a cool thing you know like right. the same way like i'm a i'm a huge patriot like i want it to be cool to love america even yeah. if you recognize all her flaws like i want that to be cool and to be proud of where we're from despite its flaws and despite everything that's wrong we do live in a pretty great place you know absolutely that that's the 
best explanation I've heard of that issue. I, I, <laughs> that really opened my mind. I thank you for that. That was very good. A couple more questions here because I want to be uh, conscious of your time. Um, so I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying I know your opinion isn't representative of all black people, but you're the person I'm speaking to right now. So I'm going to interested in your thoughts. What are two or three things white people can be doing to make a difference? Something that will make a tangible, positive impact, a step that I can take today or tomorrow? Um, I think the first one, and this has been like harped on, it's being harped on for a reason, is learn. And I was on a different podcast and he asked me, you know, what books are you reading so that I can tell people? And I was like, hey man, I got to be honest. Like, I'm pretty bad about reading all these books that we've all seen like white fragility, YouTube crow, all these different books that you should be reading and I should be reading. But, you know, I'll even admit I'm bad at that. And I think you should, what you should take for take from and what we say, learn and educate is make that fit into something that you already do incorporate it into a part of your lifestyle. So I read a ton of articles and people always think I'm a well-read person and they'll, they would characterize me as a person who reads a ton of books, but I really just read a ton of articles and I get like bits and pieces and they reference the books. And now I know what all these books are kind of saying, yeah. not fully, but like I'm able to participate in really thoughtful conversations because I just read a ton of articles. And what do I need to do? I need to start reading more articles related to race and these issues. I'm like, I, I write in the article, like I avoided them sometimes because it's just like painful to read sometimes. Like it makes me kind of pessimistic and it makes me, kind of down about the life I'm living, despite that I live a great life, you know? And that's what I need to be doing. Or if you're a person who rips podcasts all the time, how about once a week or twice a week, you listen to a podcast about race issues or just from a black thinker sure, or, or, or a black speaker or a black educator. Or if, if you're a person who reads books, then you should pick up books. Or if you love documentaries, how about you watch a documentary about prison like 13th on netflix or something like that Th that's what i think is more impactful is not asking people to do things that they probably wouldn't do about all their other passions yeah but just make it fit into your life and recognize that it should be have, should have a place in your life that's learning i think the second one is another one that's been harped on conversing and i think it's easy for me to say because i love talking to people and like race, culture, anything. I just love hearing about people's lives and their stories and relating and laughing. If you're an introvert, that could be tough, but like you can secondhand do it. Like you can listen to this conversation yeah. or just inquiring. There's so many small ways we live in such an unprecedented time with the internet and everything that you can vicariously participate in conversations. And if you can't have those and you don't, maybe you don't have a black person in your life. Yeah. Or maybe that black person in your life isn't comfortable having those conversations, whether because it's too painful for them or they're just kind of like frustrated with all this right now mm. is an understandable feeling finding ways to fit that in. But conversations about like the same overlap there is probably like, why do my family never talk about this? Maybe your dad or your mom is super turned off to these conversations and uh, these whole dialogue. Like how about you just inquire about why you don't even have to push them to change their opinion. Just like, Hey, why do you feel this way? And like, why do you think that is? And like recognize your own family history and, and all of this or upbringing. Uh, and the third, I think 
third, I think, is just trying to decide. I think it goes back to that same thing with patience and urgency is sort of do some self-reflection. Self-reflection, I guess, is what it is. And ask yourself why you're more inclined to be one or the other or just completely offset from it like or turned off to it. Yeah. And self-reflect and realize that there's a power in that regardless of how you feel about these issues. Self-reflection is positive. It's going to cause you to question some of the things that you believe in. And if you really truly believe in what you're doing, it's going to make you better understand those things so that you can have better conversations so that you can learn better so that you can portray those ideals better. And just self-reflection, I think, is just huge in anything. And setting out time to just think that'll help you in your business practice, that'll help you in your family life, in your in your passions, and it'll help you in this and help you to just be a more conscientious person. I think that's great advice. So um, for a person who wants to start a conversation, like a, say a white person wants to talk to their black friend about this, how do they start that conversation? I think recognizing what is going on within you right now and why you want to have this conversation. Like I had a really powerful call with one of my buddies the other day and he was like, Hey man, can I give you a call? And he's like, you know, I, I know you're probably like feeling tons of emotions right now. And I, I don't mean to like drag you in. I know you're watching, a, I was watching a movie at the time. He's like, I know you're watching a movie, but he was like, this thing has been weighing on my heart and you've always been a friend of mine that I felt like I could have meaningful conversations with about anything. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about life and issues. And here's a story of what happened. He had, a, he had an issue where he called one of his friends. And he, he, he said the N word in a conversation with one of his black friends mm. and he's never been able to like deal with the guilt of that and recognize how that sort of changed his friendship with the kid. And he wants to grow from it. Uh, and he just started it with, you know, this is weighing on my heart and you are a person who I love and care about and your perspective on it matters to me. Yeah. I think if you have a friend and you can put it that way, they're going to, they're just going to, like they're your friend, they're going to want to have that with you, even if it's painful for them because they're recognizing that like, oh, this is going to be painful for you too. Sure. This isn't just so you can check the box that I had the conversation. This right. is so I can say, you know. I talked about these issues with my friend and we just agreed on everything. I'm in a good place. You know? <laughs> it's so that you can probably go through some painful things, you know? Yeah. That's good. That's helpful for sure. And I guess the last one I'll say is for the three, I'm adding a fourth, call things out for what they are. Yeah. Like it's too easy. the things we see around us or to to rationalize it into you know this is better like it could be your family member it could be you it could be whoever it or whatever just call it for what it is because until you recognize it you'll never be able to go anywhere further with it sure yeah that's a great point that's a great point i'd like to end this on a more positive note so i i i usually ask people kind of a list of questions that I stole from Tim Ferriss, but I really just want to ask you one thing. What is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? 
I can think of so many individual acts of kindness and repetitive kindness from people that I've received always. But I don't think anything will ever top just my parents and just how they raised me and my, my siblings and the pressures of, like I said, we were middle class, but like that wasn't easy for them to be the parents they were. That wasn't easy for them to spend money on us to live a life that was definitely above our means in terms of coming out here and things we did with our friends and never complaining despite the toll it could take on them too and their relationship. And to me, that's just the utmost kindness, even though some people would say that's their duty as a parent. I think parents can do their job in many different ways into different levels. And it takes a high level of kindness and compassion to do your job that well, especially when your kids aren't always grateful for it. I think that's an excellent place to end. Ramesh, where can people connect with you if they want to talk more? Uh, I'm on Instagram, R-N-A-G-A underscore. That's R-N-A-G-A underscore. I'm on LinkedIn with my name, which you'll include. Facebook with my name. Facebook's a little hard to connect with people because the the interface for friend requests is weird. But yeah. LinkedIn and Instagram are really easy. And I, I respond to all my messages eventually. might take some time, but I always respond. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think a lot of people will feel the same way. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It was a good, great conversation. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.